Like Flint Radio, I'm your host GK. In this episode, my guest is Gary Wayne. Gary is the author of the book The Genesis Six Conspiracy, and obviously by the title, you'll know that we're going to be talking a little bit about the goings on in uh, in Genesis Six, but also the uh, many things that come out of that and surround that and related to that. Um, just to give you some idea, we're going to talk about. Um, did the Nephilim survive the flood? Uh, what did the Freemasons believe? What is Gnosticism? Why is the Stuart dynasty, which King James was a part of, why is it so important? We're also going to be talking about secret societies and their aims, the Illuminati, all the good stuff. And if you listen to the end, you'll hear Gary make a very generous offer to our Australian, New Zealand and UK listeners. Um, I think it's mainly for those people outside of the USA. Okay, so strap yourself in. Here is my interview with Gary Wayne. All right, so welcome to Like Flint Radio for the first time, the author of Genesis 6 Conspiracy, Gary Wayne. Gary, welcome to the show and thanks for uh, accepting my invitation for the interview. Well, I'm so happy to be here and talk to your audience. And I think, you know, what we're going to talk about tonight is probably going to generate a lot of interest, or at least that's kind of what I'm hoping for. So, very excited to have a discussion with you tonight. Look, I think it will. Um, I've I've read your book, and I tell you, it's it's a very very big book. Um, what I like about it, Gary, if I just give my quick review here, what I like about it is um, because it is such a long book and it's big and it covers a you know thousands of years of history. Is uh, you have it sectioned. I like that, and I like how the sh- the chapters aren't really long. And the other thing is, sometimes you might come to the next section and you will have um, in there, you will go through what you've discussed before. That way, say someone wants to grab a chunk of information, the book is good for that. Um, so uh, I find that really uh, well written. I like your writing style um, and the way that you do help the reader with background information if they just want to grab a chunk. So I really like that. And because um, we'll talk, probably talk about this a bit later, there were certain chunks that appealed to me personally, uh, which we, we're definitely going to get to. But anyway, listen, Gary, you, you know, you've done a lot of interviews about your book, and I'm probably going to end up asking some questions that have been covered before. And, you know, these questions that will highlight just how broad and how deep your book is, but, you know, we have to accept, I've accepted, I won't be able to cover everything. We could probably do, you know, a whole series of interviews on your book. So what I plan to do, my, my questions I've structured in, a, structured in a way that some of them will cover the general themes of your book, and then I want to hit some individual points so that people get a taste of what I'm talking about here, how you can just grab a, a chunk and get into it. So... Just to start with, can you just tell uh, my audience a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, so uh, I, I live in Vancouver, Canada, and I'm a real prophecy buff. And 
I really started to get interested in prophecy uh, about 35 years ago now or so, and I started to catalog all the different uh, aspects of prophecy, right from right from Genesis right through to Revelations. And I wanted to uh, I wanted to maybe perhaps down the road write books on prophecy, and so I logged everything in terms of the different streams. And as I was logging every sort of narrative that is that is in there on prophecy these giants in genesis 6 came up which is a very very odd sort of set of verses in genesis and the giants just kept keep coming up after the flood as well and then by the time you know as, you, as you're logging and i'm getting into the new testament there's some very very odd references to the days of noah and uh, the angels who lost their authority, and then Jesus is talking about the end times is going to be like the days of Noah, and then we have the abyss, and we have the demons in Revelation, and we have the fallen angels, and we have the war in heaven, and so what I thought I would do would write my first book on something that was rather easy and kind of piqued my interest, which is how, how I wanted to write a book that was going to connect Genesis right to Revelations, and I thought it was going to be my shortest book, and it's probably going to end up being my longest book, or at least I hope, because it is, uh, it's an 800-page book and with 98 chapters and a preface and an epilogue. So that's how I got into this genre, and as I started to write, more and more doors kept opening, and I kept asking more and more questions. And as those questions were being answered and as I was getting material on this, there was more and more opportunities to open even more doors, and that's just sort of how it went. So, I mean, I could continue to write on this almost indefinitely, but at some point in time you have to sort of weed it down and say, I need to get this down to a sizable level to get published, and that somebody's actually going to want to read and so even before taking it to being published, I mean, I've weeded 25% out of it to try and, and do what I wanted to do. And, and just so the people understand, what I'm trying to do with the book is, is I'm trying to write a complete narrative um, with the most research and the most uh, annotation so that people can see where I get my research from in connecting the dots and connecting more dots and presenting more information than has been presented in this genre. And I think from what I'm hearing for feedback, that's what I'm hearing is is that they've never seen this these many dots connected. They've never seen this much information. And the information keeps coming at you right to the end of the book. And I wrote it in a manner, as you mentioned, that it's, 98 mini stories and so you, each chapter is a mini story and it leads into the next chapter and it'll keep coming up as the book unfolds and so that allows you to do a couple of things one is read it in pieces leave it come back read it in pieces and come back because the chapters average about seven pages just under seven pages on on the average and secondly is is once it comes up again if you wanted to go back and reread that chapter it's fairly accessible to be able to do that well that's that's what i found and i and I, i'm glad you mentioned the end notes the 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 end notes there's copious pages of that and for a nerd like me who loves to look up the end notes to look where you got your uh, uh re found your research and your bibliography um i also appreciated that because that's absolutely huge um listen just briefly can you just give us uh the book's called the genesis 6 conspiracy 
Can you just tell us briefly what the Genesis 6 uh, conspiracy is? Well, it's a book about the uh, the rise and the creation of the giants in Genesis 6 from the copulation of fallen angels with the daughters of humans. And even that part is, is a bit controversial, and, and I do deal with that in the book, and we can deal with it in the interview if you like. But it's about the creation of these giants, but it also steps back a little bit and it connects who the fallen angels are, who, how the descendants of Cain partnered in this whole conspiracy, the rise of the mystical religions and the secret societies around the Nephilim and the descendants of Cain, how they totally corrupted the antediluvian epoch, how this partnership and these religions and these secret societies and the knowledge that they developed crossed the flood, how they survived the flood, how they affected their early post-Diluvian epoch at places like Babel and Sodom and Gomorrah, and in fact, all through the world, how they affected our history, what they're doing today, what effectively is their plan for today, for today and how they're planning about bringing about the end time. So it is literally a 6,000-year uh, narrative that is a connect-the-dots investigation into the descendants of the uh, the Nephilim and these organizations that partnered with them all through history. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now, I, I think that's probably a very good overview. I don't think I could have said it uh, better myself. Um, listen, there's one question I wanted to ask you, and and it, this this is always a good question to ask someone like you who's written something like this and done the research. Did the Nephilim survive the flood? And and if they did, how did they? Well, that's uh, such a key question to the whole book and, and the whole credibility. Mm. Just as just as were the, the Nephilim actually giants, which is right, you didn't right. ask that question. No, that, yeah, no, I skip I skip straight <laughs> to the. <laughs> so, um, but I'm going to answer your question okay. as opposed to the one that I raised. We can back to the other one. We can we can cover both. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So what we learn in Genesis 6 is is a very odd statement that the Nephilim um, were around then and then afterwards. And we're not told how that happens. But when we look start looking into aspects of Scripture that detail accounts of the Nephilim after the flood, we run into an incredible amount of passages devoted to the giants in in the Old Testament, in nations like the Anakites and the Raphaites and the Avites and the Amorites and the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Amites and on and on and on. There's just this, this litany of giant nations that permeate the stories of the Old Testament and right through to the time of the Exodus and even through to the time of the monarchy. So the Bible doesn't tell us specifically how they survived the flood. But if you're going to ask a critical question as to how that happened or how there are giants after the flood, if they're all wiped out by the flood, then there's three possibilities. I mean, the first one is is that they survived in arcs or they survived at mountaintops or fallen angels helped them to uh, survive. Um, so that's one possible way. Another possible way is, is there was a, they didn't survive the flood. There's a second recreation of the Nephilim after the flood. And then the third one is, and I'm least likely to accept the third one, but it, it's a pretty common theory out there where somehow 
some of the wives were uh, Nephilim, and that's where the Nephilim bloodline comes from. But that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because if if God was going to wipe the earth of the Nephilim, why would He permit um, these Nephilim on the ark? And if He was in, why if all the bloodlines of the males and even the wife of Noah, those bloodlines were pure. Why would they mix those with the Nephilim bloodline? So I, I struggle with that. that, and in that the that's a good point. That's a good point. And you know, the second one you raised, is that what we call the second violation hypothesis? Yes. Okay, yes. yeah. It, is that the one that you would lean to if there was going to be one? I, I would lean to actually both. Okay. Uh, I, I, I'm not, I kind of go back and forth on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just on the third one, the other issue I have with that is, is the Gnostic religions are just, they have a number of accounts where the people on the ark, some of them were giants, so typically Tubal-Cain will find a way to hide his way on it, and you saw that in the last Noah movie as part of the Gnostic religion sort of being overlaid on that, or Ham was a giant, or Ham and Japheth was a giant, or all of the inhabitants were giants, and those are all different uh, gospels in the Gnostic religion, and so they have this this understanding that it wasn't the survival of uh, uh, of the Sethites on the Ark, but they're really talking about a giant creation. But the other religions and the other mythologies all describe floods, and they all describe giants, and they all describe giants surviving the flood. And probably the best known example I would have of an example where uh, both a giant survived the flood, and there was a recreation after the flood. And by the way, just let me just say that the Gnostics also looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah as the area where there was a violation of the second uh, time by the. For the for the readers to understand is is the fallen angels that copulated the first time they were put in the abyss uh, and imprisoned as their punishment, but not all the fallen angels were. So the theory is 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 that uh, there was another violation after the flood by the ones that didn't partake with the 200 before the flood and so one would presume then they would have been put in the abyss as well but my point was was with the gnostics is they believe sodom and gomorrah was that spark in the post-diluvian world for a recreation as well as survival so if you go to the most famous flood narrative I think on the planet other than what's in the Bible is is the one that's taught in schools to sort of deface the Christian in Noah story and that's the epic of Gilgamesh because it's an older according to secular history an older version of the of the of the flood myth and it looks the same on the macro level but when you get into the details, you learn it's a completely different story. And so when we talk about Gilgamesh, who's telling the story to Anakedon, or Anakedu, depending on which translation you want to translate the name from, and they're talking about Zayazudra or Apnapishan, again, depending on which translation that you want to use, understand that Gilgamesh is a demigod, and he is a giant, and he is one of the giants that survived the flood on the Apnapishan Ark. And Gilgamesh is also mentioned in the book of Enoch as one of the giants being told that the flood was coming and there was nothing that uh, the, the, the giants or anybody could do about it. And so they had to look at how they were going to survive. Now, 
Anakedon, who the story is being told to, was recreated, was not recreated, was created after the flood as a countermeasure because Gilgamesh was such a terrible, horrible, potentate, evil, murdering people, taking as many wives as he want, and just, you know, just being a complete terror on the land. Unfortunately, though, and, and Enikedon is created in the same manner as what Gilgamesh was. So he's a demigod as well. And he's also a giant. And he becomes great friends with Gilgamesh as opposed to holding Gil- Gilgamesh at bay. And then we learn that Upnapishtinar's Izudra was the archetypical Nephilim and a king. And he was a military warrior and an evil potentate as all the Nephilim were. And my book goes into great detail on, on backing that up. And so this is a whole story of the survival of giants. This has nothing to do with the Noah story. Noah was not a king. Uh, he was not a giant. He was a mortal human being and uh, the, a, a, a pure descendant of the Sethites. So in that Epic of Gilgamesh example, we have both how they've survived on another ark and a recreation. And again, other religions and other mythologies are absolutely rife with both types of survival. So that's why I kind of go back and forth and say, you know, it could be both or yeah. it could be one or the other. It's hard to know. Yeah, yeah, I, I see why you're saying that. Um, uh, so I guess we need to go back to the question that, that you asked. Um, you know, who who are the Nephilim? Um, like, I, I accept that, you know, that they were the giants and the offspring of, you know, uh, the mating between humans and, and, and angelic beings, which we call angels. Now, I know there is some uh, discussion about that, but I, I think that's what I accept. So would that be your basic premise as well? It is, and uh, there's a there's a strong contingent out there, and I certainly respect their perspective because it's hard to accept the supernatural basis of the Bible at times. But I would submit that the the Bible is full of supernatural things. So um, I'm not sure why they would find this one as uh, as being more difficult to accept than others. But so their theory is is that these were Sethites. Uh, that went to the daughters of men, and uh, they back that up by saying that in the New Testament, uh, the sons of God are just uh, are, are humans, which is absolutely true. Except that what they're doing is is they're taking a New Testament, New Covenant metaphor of the sons of God that they'll be adopted as heirs of of uh, eternity with Jesus and accepted as Jesus' brother for eternity and transposing that on to the, the Bena Halloween, the sons of God in Genesis 6. And in fact, even when if, you, if somebody wants to take that argument right to um, an actual quote, if I were to go to Hebrews in 12 and 7, I think it's basically talking about this aspect of adoption uh, into the new covenant and where God treats them, the new Christians, as sons, even though they have human fathers. And so this is distinctly different than the sons of God that we're talking about in Genesis 6. And if we go to Job, whether it's 1-6 or 2-1 or 38-4-7, it clearly describes angels as being the sons of God. This is also the standard understanding of antiquity, and uh, Josephus is, is a 
I think a terrific example of understanding that it was actually angels that went to humans and created giants uh, with this copulation. So it's it's a very very um, vigorous argument, and but uh, again, I believe that uh, it's pretty clear to me in terms of the context mm-hmm. uh, and, and what the they language. did. And, and the language yeah. mm. that they were they were the angels. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, look, I agree. I'm sorry I skipped over that one because I <laughs> I just assumed it, you know. But but um, um, listen, you know, you couldn't have this discussion really without talking about Enoch. But in your book, you talk a lot about um, the an evil Enoch. Can you tell us who the good Enoch and who the evil Enoch is? Sure. Well, in if somebody wants to pay attention to the genealogies of Cain and of Seth, you're going to notice that those genealogies have a lot of similar names and a a very, very much alike in terms of a lot of the names and their pronunciation. But as it turns out, there's an Enoch that's son of Cain, and actually the first son of Cain as it's recorded in the Bible. And then there's an Enoch that is uh, son of Jared in um, the Seth line. Now, it's the Enoch son of... uh, from the Seth line that is the holy Enoch that walked with God and was raptured to heaven. But Enoch, son of Cain, is a whole different ballgame. And that's where people have to take a step back, in my opinion, to understand that both Enochs wrote scripture. And both Enochs were very, very famous. And so if you're going to read the book of Enoch, you need to understand that you have to weigh everything it says against what's in the Bible, because if it doesn't, it's likely written by the other Enoch. And what's so unfortunate about uh, Enoch the evil is is that he, he learned something from his father, just as Seth did, but they take this information and they apply it in two totally different manners. So Enoch, uh, Adam is taught... The, the seven sacred sciences and a whole bunch of information in Eden. And then he teaches that to Abel and Cain, but Cain obviously kills Abel. And then later, uh, Cain is ostracized and uh, Adam then teaches Seth. Now, Seth and the Sethians will apply the seven sacred sciences in a way that respects God, honors him as the creator of the universe, doesn't have uh, rituals and idolatry and things like that that's mixing it in and using it mostly for the application of agriculture and astronomy for the seasons and things like that because they were agrarians. Whereas right out of the gate, we see something else going on with Cain and then with Enoch and then all of the progeny thereafter right through to Lamech and Tubal Cain and Nama and Jebel and Jebel. And what's going on here is they take this knowledge and combine it with illicit knowledge being taught to them by the watchers, known as seraphim angels. Uh, And this is additional illicit information being taught to Cain and Enoch. And to keep this information and to develop it, they do a couple of things. One is, is that they develop a mystical religion, a sun-worshipping religion, uh, religion, which Enoch is the father of all sun uh, religions around the world, which is basically all of the polytheism in, in the world for the most part. And they also develop secret societies to develop this information. And they develop it in a way that's perverted from what God had taught in Eden. 
and they do it in a way that doesn't honor God as the creator, and they do everything to honor who they have now accepted as their God, which is Lucifer. And they develop these seven sacred sciences to an absolutely astonishing level in the antediluvian epoch and to a level that perhaps is even uh, more advanced than what we have today, to the level where they are doing DNA manipulation, uh, perhaps flying machines. And we see some of this recorded in prehistory and other religions. So if you want to talk about DNA manipulation, just go to Greek mythology and you're going to have a centaur or you're going to have a pegasus or you're going to have um, all sorts of different animals being created. And over to India, you're going to have this this god that looks like uh, an elephant with a trunk and you've got these multiple hands and on and on and on and on. There's a lot of testimony out there from other religions and mythology as to how far this technology was developed. And right out of the gate, Cain is building cities. And that's the fifth science, which is geometry, which is also the root for masonry. It's the alternative name. And so Freemasonry is this organization, or I guess as it was known more than was ancient masonry, antediluvian masonry, that was developed as a secret societies. And building pyramids and cities and great walls was a manifestation as to the application of these sciences. And so we also hear about some of this knowledge that's being developed in uh, further down the line with uh, the sons of Lamech. And again, there are two Lamechs. So I'm talking about the Lamech of of uh, the Cain line in this case. And so we Gary, have... Can I, can I just jump in here? Is this the reason? May. Is this the reason why the Masons revere this evil Enoch because uh, you just mentioned there um, the fifth uh, science uh, being connected with Masonry. Mm-hmm. Yes, Enoch is, is, they consider Enoch as their founder, as their patriarch. Right, okay, so uh, I didn't mean to derail you, but, uh, you know, it just occurred to me then that's why that's why they revere him, isn't it? Yeah, and what they've done is, is they fused him um, in the modern era with the holy Enoch, so that they would have oh, a yeah. fool of the people in the lower levels and be protected from persecution from the from the Roman Catholic Church, and that was a deliberate sort of misdirection just for their own, I guess, survivability in the West. But also, you know, if we look at uh, Tubal Cain, he is also a very, very famous and honored patriarch in Freemasonry and in ancient Masonry. And he was considered and is still considered, um, you know, the, uh, a smith and artificer of the highest level and inventing tools and weapons and a master craftsman and a master metallurgy craftsman. And we, we do hear in the Bible that Tubal Cain, again, just sort of hints at it that he forged tools and with bronze and iron, which again, iron in secular science hasn't been dated back to that, to, uh, to that period of time. Mm-hmm. Well, in the book, I'll make the case that it actually, there is evidence of that. And Nama was also one of these four that, and the reason why the four sons of Lamech are so famous, they had like a revitalization of, uh, uh, of the sciences and it's and it had kind of waned in the generation or so before but they renewed it and took it to whole new levels and so there is nama who also was uh, uh an inventor of weaving according to the freemasonic legends and uh she also married giants 
and uh, has uh, a lot to do with the uh, Deucalion um, uh, flood narrative and I may come back to that at some point in time, but she she's in there for a reason. And Jubel uh, is accredited with music, and which is one of the sciences. And Jubel also developed masonry. And given people an idea what I'm talking about, how powerful this information was, you have to understand how far they took it. And then when it crosses the flood, as an example, we have Hermes who discovers the pillars created by Lamech's sons that has the sciences on it and the directions to this knowledge that the evil Enoch had written into 36,525 books, as I recall, stored in nine vaults and were stored under the pyramids, which Freemasons also believe Enoch was responsible for the building of as another example of the technology of masonry. But they revitalized this secret organization this mystical religion, partnership with Nimrod, partnership with giants at Babel, and they start to do as their first manifestation after the flood, the city of Babel with the high walls and the tower being built, which would have been another ziggurat. And I know most people have it more as a circular ziggurat, but my guess is because it was more likely a depiction of of, uh, Mount Hermon that it was a standard sort of pyramid type of thing. And... Nimrod at this point in time becomes the first grand master of Freemasonry of the post-Diluvian Epoch and he writes the constitution that these organizations and mystery schools and religions are going to work with from that point on and it stays that way until Moses III of Egypt um, does another rewrite and updates it. That is pretty much continued to this day, and that's where the Great White Brotherhood terminology starts, is, is with Moses III. So I think I covered a lot of material you, there. You, you really did. I wanted to ask you, um, we have some uh, friends who are Freemasons, and um, I also know the the most worshipful master of one of the local lodges, you know, and um, I, I'm not a Mason, but... Um, I did notice um, when I first met him and he'd found out that I'd been to Israel and, and been to the Temple Mountain, that that really piqued his interest. And that's when he really um, started to question me a, a lot about that, what I saw, what I knew about it. And um, and that's when I learned who he was. But um, uh, Well, give you, and give you an example of uh, how much they might revere some of these people. Um, they like to give out a ring and actually was on um, a plane with a uh, 33rd degree uh, adept of Scottish Rite, and he had a ring on, and I've got a picture of this ring um, that I keep on my Facebook site. But anyways, and the one on my Facebook site is slightly different than the one I have here, but he showed me a ring that had a stick and two dots on it and asked me, um, what I thought that was, and if I could guess it, he'd answer some questions. And uh, and, I, and for a while, it just didn't ring any bells. But uh, so I said, so it's either two dots or two balls, uh, and then there's a stick, perhaps a cane. And I said, could it represent two volcane? And he said, absolutely, that's what it represents. And uh, but he didn't really answer any of my any of the questions. No, no, they some they difficult questions. No, they don't. Um, because I've asked, um, asked, uh, we know a couple and they're really good, they're good friends. Uh, and I've asked them and they just 
change the subject and talk about something else. And this guy that I'm talking about, the, the guy who was the head guy, um, he was asking me more questions than I got to ask him. But what I wanted to ask you, um, uh, just in general, so, uh, you, you know, the modern everyday Freemasons, like the guys I know, they're really good guys. They really care about doing work in the community and working for the community. Uh, would they be aware of much of this? Now, I know the head honcho was because he, he really quizzed me, but... You know, with other everyday, ordinary, you know, and I hate to use that term, but if you know what I'm trying to say, do they are they aware of this sort of thing? No, not for the most part. Certainly, mm. you know, if they're part of some of the pure bloods, and that's not something we've touched on yet, okay. they they would have uh, been educated um, from the beginning. So Freemasonry is kind of one of the lower level today of the uh. um, secret societies, and they're sort of a recruitment. Um, base for the secret societies. And so there's going to be some, uh, some bloodlines in there, but you have to be invited in whatever mm. their screening process mm. to be invited. Um, they do go through that process, so they just don't let anybody in. And mm. one of the qualifications is, is that you have to worship a god at the lower levels. And it doesn't matter what god, as long as you worship a god. And, but as they go through, then they start to learn more and more secrets, but they don't really learn the true meanings to the secrets and the allegories and the rituals and the history until they become an adept, uh, at least at the first level of adept, which is 33rd degree Scottish right or 3rd degree York right. Uh, so, uh, Gary, the Gary. lower levels, to answer your question, yeah. I'm just Sorry. Uh, is, is no, they don't know. In mm. fact, and it's a good organization where they're doing good out there yeah. in the communities and everything, and mm. it's a good way to, to to make business connections and things like that. It's only at the inner circle, at the adept level, and once you start to get into the Illuminati level or the illuminated adept level, do you uh, know what's really going on? Right. I was going to say that my wife and I were invited to a dinner and um, it, there were several couples there and we were the only ones who weren't Freemasons and I wasn't invited and they they, they didn't talk about anything and anything, anything came up that was might be slightly related to it, the, the, the subject got changed. But um, I wanted to ask you, um, why would someone want to become a 33rd degree Mason? What's in it for them? What do you get out of it? Well, if you're going to be going uh, through to that level, then mm. you're, you're obviously um, believing uh, in, in something other than uh, what is normally taught in, in, in the normal religions. And secondly, is, is what you're going to be getting is, is an ability to uh, reincarnate uh, and to evolve to gods, which is some of the secrets that they're holding at the 33rd degree level, and who the god is that they actually worship, which isn't um, the god that they say every... At the lower levels, they say God is known by a thousand different names around the world, and it's the same God. But at the 33rd degree level, you're going to be introduced and initiated into Luciferian doctrine, and you're going to learn that that is the God that you're worshiping and that the God of the Bible is is the arch enemy or vice versa of Lucifer. So there's a whole different level, but again, there's um, a depth level that go higher than uh, the the third degree or the 33rd degree. So um, there's more initiation that is going to happen even after that. Uh, this idea that being introduced to, um, you know, the, the well, their true God being, you know, Lucifer, th that's a Gnostic idea, isn't it? It is a Gnostic idea. And um, Gnostic religion is the religion of the secret societies. And it's a cosmology of all 
all of the ancient religions. And so today in uh, Freemasonry and modern Freemasonry, they use the allegories mostly of ancient Egypt, but they'll use other allegories. But understand, this is the same religion. And the Rosicrucians, which are higher than uh, Freemasonry adapts, and they're a lot higher on this, this hierarchy of secret organizations, they were the ones that were in charge of keeping this Gnostic religion going into Western civilization after the fall of, of the Templars. And so uh, they created some spin-off organizations, uh, and they also created some spin-off religions that people may be familiar with, and one of them would be theosophy. And, of course, theosophy was the parent of the rogue Ariosophy uh, that uh, the Nazis worshipped. It was similar to theosophy. And also New Age is an extension of this of this religion. So, yes, Gnosticism, that's why it was so important for me to read the Gnostic Gospels and understand what the Gnostic Gospels were talking about. But I also had to learn that this was a cosmology of Zoroastrianism, the Egyptian religion, the the, uh, the doctrines and philosophy of Hermes, uh, and all the different world religions. And it's easily absorbed into one sort of synthesis because if you understand that it goes all back to the original root religion of Enochian mysticism, which is a sun-worshipping um, religion of Enoch the evil, then it makes sense. They have they have the same pantheon. They just have vernacular names to the different gods. Right. I could imagine. Stories. Yeah. Look, I could imagine there are people today who we would recognize as Gnostics, like people in the New Age movement, and they would have no idea what they're doing themselves. They wouldn't even know that they're involved in something that goes back this far. Exactly. And the Gnostics even tried to absorb Christianity. Mm -hmm. Yep. And again, that'll play a big part in in my book and how it sort of weaves it its way through from the point of the crucifixion forward. Yeah. And uh, ever so much that they do regard Jesus as a uh, prophet, but not as a deity. Right. Uh, as a mortal, and similar to Hermes, or similar to Zoroaster, or similar to Mohammed, or similar to Isaiah, a good prophet, a great prophet, but mortal nonetheless. And that's how they accept Jesus into their ranks. So again, they try and absorb all of the religions. And the reason why it's important to understand that and for people not to get lost on um, what's going on with Islam today is, mm -hmm. is that that's not going to be the end time religion. It's mm -hmm. going to be this universal religion of Babylon, which is why Babel is so important to understand what we were talking about earlier. And I, I spent a fair bit of time on Babel in, in the book. And, yeah. and it's this religion that's going to be the universal end time religion. Well, then, now that you brought that up, uh, how do you think they, the, um, they're going to win the uh, Muslims over because um, if there's one people that uh, appear to be standing up for what they believe to, uh, you know, what we might call extreme ends, it's the Muslims. Like, um, yeah, we know a lot of, all of us know a lot of people who are uh, nominal Christians who probably won't take much pressure and who would probably fold rather quickly under pressure, but Muslims don't seem to be like that. How will they be won over? Do you have uh, any ideas on that? Because I'm not sure that that's in your book, but I, it just occurred to me when you mentioned it. 
Yeah, I actually do spend a little bit of time on, mm. on that in the book because, again, mm. you know, for people who are looking at end-time prophecy, and yeah. if you're going to ask hard, critical questions, that's one of the toughest things to believe, that the whole world is going to convert except for naysaying Christians, and I extend that to monotheists as a whole, uh, that um, people are going to convert to this religion. And there's going to be a lot of things that are going to have to take place for that to happen with catastrophes and things like that. But Islam in particular, and just as with Christianity, the the mystical religions have infiltrated all of the monotheist religions. Okay, so that molds on the inside. And just like they have molds on the inside of Protestantism and Catholicism from the beginning, and we can see some of the impacts of those ones and the changing of doctrine and the introduction of allegorical doctrine as opposed to literal doctrine. Because you have to understand Gnostics believe in allegories and the meaning to those allegories, and everything is written that way. So when they apply allegorical meaning to the Bible, that's the virus that they're putting in there because in the end time they're going to reinterpret the New Testament and the Old Testament in a completely different way than what it says and deliver you what they say is the true meaning. So they're going to manipulate the Bible that way. So understand that the Gnostics have molded into Christianity and they have also influenced Islam from the beginning. And so They've also been led away and down a path through, there's a couple different sects, but the issue with those sects is they have these other books other than the Quran called the Hadiths. And these are the man-made uh, uh, doctrines and writings of the so-called what somebody heard, somebody heard, somebody heard that Muhammad might have said. And that's where the things like the Mahdi comes up and a whole bunch of the perversions, in my opinion, um, of the Quran. Because uh, I'm actually quite favorable about the Quran because of the, the terrific information and testimony it does to Christianity in the Old Testament, which most people won't understand. So what's happened in Islam is, is it's been hijacked by the extremists and the institutionalists. And they're not teaching what Islam was originally taught. And so they're already leading them away, and it's already heavily influenced. And I think with some of the things that I outlay in the book in terms of what's going to happen with um, uh, the catastrophes and uh, the, uh, uh, the, the three people that come forward, first to convert the Catholics and then Christianity out of Medjugorje with the ten warnings to convert or disasters going to happen, uh, I think everything's kind of in place for that to happen. And something does have to happen to permit, at least on a wing of the temple, that the Jewish people are going to be able to start their sacrifices. And the only way that that can happen is it's the mystical end that's going to unite all of the religions, and they are going to persecute fundamental Islamists that stick to the Quran and and believe what the Quran says, and it, and that the Quran says that the New Testament is accurate and the Old Testament is accurate. It's going to be the the literalist Christians who understand the Bible, and it's also going to be a large Jewish uh, faction plus the awakening uh, Israelites in the end time that are going to stand against the New World Order, the Antichrist, and the universal religion. But again, I covered a lot of territory there. And I, I hope I answered your question, at least in a, in a way that you can see how it's going to come together.
Yeah, because it would be difficult now because we're uh, where we are now. We have we're being um, uh, overloaded by the media, um, both uh, you know the mainstream media and the alternative media uh, about Islam and but all these warnings about it and just how you know um, strong, let's say, evil, how bad they are, right? But and and so I'm thinking, well, how will the new world order win those those guys over? So that's why I asked that. Well, question. they'll just they'll just take those extremists out when they're done with them because right. they're actually funding them, and their job is is to create anarchy and yeah. terror, yeah. and so that people will welcome the safety net of the elite and the powerful and world government that's going to bring everybody peace. Right? That's just sort of what what they do as one of their a billion or thousands and thousands of different plays that they're doing to cattle herd everybody in in into world government. right and and you can see it playing out as we speak uh in europe um and you know yeah. who who you know bring some order out of this chaos that people are begging for it and who doesn't want that <laughs> exactly and i also want to make clear for your um listeners in case they think i'm a proponent of chrislam mm. or a muslim i am a christian mm -hmm. i i i believe so strongly in the New Testament that I place everything around the New Testament, Old Testament, and the Quran, and that if after reading the Quran, if I was a Muslim, I would become a Christian. So I'm not promoting Islam as a religion. I'm just saying when I was surprised when I read it, like how, what it said and how it followed the, the first two testaments and the accounts of Jesus and the virgin birth and the resurrection. Yeah, look, I, I encourage people to read that section. Um, it comes towards the end and um, it is uh, surprising and it's also somewhat refreshing to hear it from that angle. Um, yeah, you know, we've covered some general generalities, but um, I want to hone into some individual stuff now, uh, specific stuff, so that people get a taste. Because we can't talk about everything that's in the book, uh, because if we did, then why would people want to go out and buy it? But um, <laughs> can you tell us a little about a bit about um, this is a sort of a three part question, and I I pick up you're already good at these sort of things, Gary, but. Um, I want to talk about um, Plantard and the Priory of Zion, um, but to get to that, I think we've got to start with what was found, uh, allegedly found um, uh, after the Crusades and they successfully retook Jerusalem and what they might have found when they excavated underneath the Temple Mount um, in the 11th and 12th century. So can we talk about that sort of area? Okay, so what did they find in those ex excavations and who is the Priory of Zion? And then can we talk about Plantard himself a bit? Okay, so the uh, it was the Knights Templars that did the excavation of, um, of uh, the Jerusalem excavation and the Temple Mount. And so the Priory of Zion is, is the secret organization that um, is is older than the Templars and actually goes back to the princes of Jerusalem and back to the Essenes and back to the the first temple being built. And so this organization um, partnered with um, uh, Calabrian monks to create the, the initial um, Templar organization that were sent over to excavate, excavate the uh, uh, the Temple Mount, and they were digging there for things that they already had information on and that they thought was already there, because again, they're connected to the Essenes who were part of the priesthood of the uh, Judaic um, 
religion of that time. And that time, in case people don't remember, there were the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Essenes. Okay, and, this, and these people connected themselves back to the Essenes, and the Essenes were polytheists. And the polytheists, Essenes, had Enoch the evil as their most important patriarch, and they valued the Book of Jubilees, which is written by the evil Enoch, as probably their most sacred ancient scripture. And so just to give everybody a little bit of a background on, on, on this. And I will cover this organization forward and backwards in, in the book in, with uh, some detail. So what happens is they, they, they go over and they excavate uh, some discoveries at the Temple Mount. And so they're going to find records from the Essenes. And the records of the Essenes are the genealogies of some of the Templars who are there and who I'm talking about here would be um, the the founding Templars. And these bloodlines are part of what they do in Gnosticism where they keep track of genealogies and right back into the midst of time. And Paul will talk to uh, this group of the Essenes and this keeping of genealogies as, as people that um, are sort of... Uh, possessed with this, and he also talks about the same group that, that worships angels. This is who that they're talking about. So who I'm talking about here is Godfrey de Bouillon, and he's the first Grand Master of the Knights Templar. And although the standard sort of testimony on the founding Knights, there was nine uh, members, the Priory of Sion a uh, record says there was 11, and these were not poor knights. They were all rich nobles, kings, and princesses, and they were all descendants of the Essenes. So 9-11, isn't that something? Isn't that interesting? But uh, carry yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, very. Yeah, never, actually, I never made that connection. <laughs> it's a good one, though. And so when we look at some of these names on here, there's some very, very famous names like, you know, uh, de Bouillon. And, uh, but when I get into guys like the folk of Anjou, and that gets into the Plantagenet dynasty, and um, we have Henry St. Clair, uh, who is not listed uh, as uh, one of the original members in the standard chronology of that, but this is the St. Clairs of uh, Roslyn. This is the people who took the Templar translation into uh, Freemasonry. So we're talking about very, very powerful families that were all related. And also, this was a mix in there of the Cistercian monks, uh, the Benedictine monks that were also involved in this whole sort of plot. And these Cistercian monks were already molded into Catholicism. And in fact, two of the original founding members were Cistercian monks, and that would be the folk of, uh, no, that would be Roselle and uh, Gondomer. And so these were the knights that brought this information back, and it's also thought that they brought more than just these records back, that they found antediluvian knowledge, that they found building knowledge that built the temple, and this started the great Gothic revolution of Europe. It was brought back to a very interesting person called St. Bernard, uh, who was also a Cistercian monk, and they, they, they uh, took this information and deciphered it and then started to apply it. 
so uh, in terms of where I'm at on this, Garth, where do you, where, where do you want me to go from here with it? Do you want well, to um, more information we, on them? Or? Um, yeah, no, what I was asking, where I, what, yeah, you gave the background. What I wanted to know was, um, you know, this guy Plantard, um, um, I've read a bit about him and, you know, the, the, for the most part, it looks like it's a bit of a fanciful story about, you know, the planting of that information in the library. Uh, oh, right. and yeah, that, that thing. So if we could talk about that just a little bit, I, I think that's interesting. Um, because you point out that, um, maybe it's not a fan, fancy. Well, it, you know, it, he's been discredited, but there's, I mean, Anytime you're dealing with these secret societies, you have to understand that if somebody goes rogue, they have to um, they have to get rid of them. They have to have their story recanted. Then they have to put out misinformation. And so, um, my point about it about what he writes about and what so many of these other people write about is that they have, and particularly Plantar here, he has way too much inside information for it, for it to be totally bogus. And he lists this complete list of members of the Priory of Sion all the way back to an interesting date, back to uh, an event that takes place that's called the Cutting of the Elms, but not before that. And people don't know what this event was that took place at Geezer's, the castle of Geezer's, and and the the first grand master that he lists back is 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 a geezer, and um, so what happens is, and, and I'm is assuming that, you don't mean an old geezer, as in G E E Z E R. Yeah, yeah, no, the <laughs> yeah, royal, <laughs> exactly, and so um, before that. Um, it was the Templars that were the Grand Masters. So if you want to see the Grand Masters before that event of the cutting of the elm that uh, split it off, then that's the Grand Masters before that. And that takes you all the way back to Godfrey. And so th- that's one of the connections that, that people don't, don't understand. And these, uh, these Grand Masters, uh, in the beginning, after the cutting of the elms, these are very, very powerful and royal people that were absolutely immersed in the bloodlines that they believe that go back to Jesus and Mary Magdalene, mm. as well as to Nephilim. And they also have, uh, were totally involved in the occult and the secret societies. Because so, this is involved with um, the, the idea that uh, uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene uh, had children and um, uh, they escaped to uh, different points of the globe and uh, and then the, some of the, these uh, royal bloodlines are descended from them. Um, it, that, so perhaps perhaps here to sort of demonstrate what we are talking about, perhaps we could talk about the Joseph of Arimathea slash James connection. That might highlight it a bit better. Sure. So in the Gnostic belief system is, is they did not believe that Jesus died on the cross. Right. And that he was removed um, before he died, and they backed that up that uh, even Pilate was surprised at, at how fast Jesus had died on the cross. And that, and that does come out of the scripture, but that's what they used to sort of do this misdirection with. In that Joseph of Arimathea, 
who they believe is James' brother of Jesus, um, takes him uh, and along with Mary Magdalene, they nurse Jesus back to health. And he survives and they escape uh, and uh, they get back together again to have children, actually have three children. And so Joseph of Arimathea, even though he's an elder in the church in the biblical account, he's, he's in a scene in the Gnostic account. And Joseph of Arimathea is also at the root to the grail sort of stories, right? And the grail in this belief system is the bloodline of Jesus, which was in, again, another fiction called the Da Vinci Code. But again, they're just writing what is a bit of fiction in with what is their true belief. So understand that they believe this. And so these the, the third son, which is Josephes, was uh, the only one that produced any heirs as the son of Mary and uh, Jesus, according to their belief system. And so from Josephes, that will marry into uh, the lineage into the Camelot and the Arthurian um, dynasties and also it crosses over to uh, the Merovingian dynasty which is a descendant of Godfrey de Bouillon of the Templars. Right, that's where I wanted to go next is, uh, yeah, Merovingians, yeah. Yeah, so and the Merovingians, um, they are in their belief system uh, this cosmology or this joining of so many royal bloodlines that they were considered the highest noble bloodline that there was at that time because not only did they believe that um, through um, the marriages that came across from the Arthurian dynasties back to either it could be James or to Jesus it doesn't really matter when you're talking about the bloodlines they believe it's both um, that they also have bloodlines that include the Nephilim bloodlines that go back into prehistory. And they also believe that they have the bloodlines of King Saul and King David in from, again, a couple other different bloodlines. And so all of these bloodlines come together for this very mystical, powerful sort of bloodlines that is their sort of holy grail of bloodlines that will eventually produce the Antichrist. And so Godfrey is an extension of that and that they're guarding these bloodlines all the way through history and the the Grail children or the per, the the possible Antichrist figure because they've got three of them that they're mentoring all of the time waiting for the opportunity. And so the Antichrist will have a combination of from their belief system uh, Nephilim bloodlines, King David, King Saul, and also um, um, Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And so they'll present this pedigree in, in the end time. Now, the pedigree from Jesus and Mary Magdalene is absolutely false. And even though they have genealogies on this going all the way back into prehistory, uh, some of those records for sure are going to be false. But it's not important what I believe. It's a it's more important to know that that's what they believe. I agree. And, yeah. and they're going to use that to bring about the end time and then present the Antichrist. 
Hi, this is GK here with a quick reminder for you that you can find all the previous episodes of Light Flint Radio in our archives at www.lightflintradio.com. Also, if you'd like a change of pace, you can check out my podcast series on the history of the King James Bible. If you'd like to know the story behind the world's bestseller, just go to www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com. Okay, so now back to the show. Yeah, look, I, I agree. I think it's a good point to make. It's um, because some of the stuff we're talking about here, we don't want to give the impression that you and I believe that because I'm I'm also a Christian. I also believe the the Bible and, you know, the New Testament, as you pointed out earlier. But um, it's important what we're sharing here is to give an... Um, an account of what these people believe so that we can understand what they're trying to bring about. Um, and I think that's what your book is uh, aimed at uh, overall, but you do go through specific points. One thing I wanted to talk about, and from a personal point of view, I think I told you there's a couple of things I want to talk about that came out in this book for me personally, Gary. Um, a few years ago, my son, um, one of my son's uh, lived and worked in the UK, but before he got there, he went to, um, he went to Turkey and he stayed with my show co-host, um, Cliff Garner. And when he left Clifton before he actually started working and living in the UK, he flew straight from Turkey to Scotland. And, um, uh, while he was in Scotland, he visited, um, Roslyn Chapel. Now, the thing is, both Cliff and my son have both been to Roslyn Chapel. When Cliff was there, they wouldn't allow photographs, but when my son was there, they let him take all the photographs he wanted of the interior. So he's got some wonderful photos. Um, uh, and then from there, he obviously went and went to the castles. He went to Edinburgh. When he was in Edinburgh Castle, um, you know, that's where they keep the Stone of Destiny and uh, or sometimes called the Stone of Scone or the Stone of Destiny. Um, that was in this separate room with the, uh, uh, the crown jewels and the swords and that from back in the era. Um, and they weren't allowed to take photographs, but because he knew that his father would really love to see the Stone of Destiny, um, he snuck in a, he snuck in a photograph and the security guard come in and said, you know, look, that's one mate, take one more and I'm taking the camera off you, you know. Um, but, um, can you tell us a little bit about why the story about Skota Island uh, the 11 tribes of Israel and the Stone of Destiny, what what those four things um, mean? Yeah, because, again, it's these bloodlines that are funneling in that, you know, goes across with Aminabad and Ergen to produce the Merovingian dynasty or the King Arthur dynasties, which are, you know, very, very important dynasties in, in their belief systems. So when we talk about Skoda, uh, there now they have there's a few different scotas uh, in in history with all of these different legends because the timelines don't always match up. Um, but essentially, Skoda is the daughter in the first Skoda is uh, the daughter of King Akhenaten, a part of the Armana dynasty. And so Skoda in this version is is the daughter of and this is their history. Uh, and I'm going to try and keep it separate from what other people will write about. But she marries um, a, a Scythian, um, Gedale, uh, and a whole bunch of different variations of Gedale in in um, in whatever legend that you're um, looking at. And they escape 
the uh, the persecution of Egypt, and they go to a number of different places, but and it, they essentially end up in Spain, and then they migrate to uh, Ireland. But it's the descendants that do, and so Hiber is one of those descendants, and that's the root word for Ireland. And there's another Skoda that's born afterwards, and that Skoda name does go with them to Ireland. Now, who Skoda is is in, in this theosophical Gnostic belief system is is the daughter of Akhenaten, who they believe was Moses, because they believe in Gnosticism that Moses was a was a wizard and he was um, a magi and educated at Heliopolis, which he was, and he would have been even as an adopted son. Um, as the Bible account, he would have been educated in the mysticism of, of Egypt, except that they don't say that he was adopted. He was always a son of a uh, pharaoh, not adopted. And so that's why those bloodlines of Skoda are very, very important. And then uh, after marrying in with the Tuatha Danan and the Celts and the fairy people that are in Ireland, um, Skoda... Um, about a thousand years later, their descendants, they take the Bethel Stone and the Stone of Akhenaten to Scotland. And so you've got two stones over there right now. One is, is the Bethel Stone and the other one is, is the uh, uh, Stone of Akhenaten. And um, so it's believed that the Bethel Stone, if I've, if I've got my facts right, is the one in um Scotland and Akhenaten stone is, is under the throne of England that all of the kings are, and queens are uh, uh, sitting on today. Uh, but I might have that mixed up. But there's both of those stones. I, I think the yeah. one the one that's in Edinburgh that my son got the photograph of was the one that was um, obviously it got probably got moved down there when King James moved down to England. But they've since returned it. So now that's the one. That's housed at um, uh, Edinburgh, so that is the one that used to be under the throne, the one that they were sort of coronated on. Yeah. So, and the important thing is, is, is that on this is, is that it's it's amazing that those uh, those those icon um, things of history are over in England and in Scotland and, and play such a big role in in the book. And I, I don't look at that as coincidence. And also. In legend, Terra from um, the daughter of Zedekiah at the time of the um, diaspora, or yeah, not the diaspora, but the uh, the Babylonian um, Holocaust against uh, Judea, escapes to Ireland as well to marry those bloodlines in with those Irish bloodlines of the Tuatha and on. And again, all of this moves over to not only the Camelot, Welsh dynasties, and the Merovingian, it also extends through, right through to the Stuart dynasty that pops up down the road. And because again, it's, that is all part of this sort of long chain of uh, very famous bloodlines and families that uh, continue to perpetuate by interbreeding uh, these purebloods. Um, Gary, just going back to something I did mention earlier, um, a little bit earlier, um, what have the 11 tribes of Israel got to do with Ireland? What's behind that? Again, in legend, mm. the, these are the tribes of the, uh, of the northern kingdom that were um, 
taken away in captivity to Assyria and then sold uh, around the world into slavery and have disappeared. And um, it's actually um, a subject that I'm in the process of writing another book on. So it's oh, kind of great. interesting that, uh, that you asked this question. Yeah. And so, and in in that book, I'm going to follow mythology and, and history and, and see how I, I, how I can link that together as well. But as it goes, these tribes were lost. And so a lot of these tribes have migrated to Ireland over time. And certainly a lot of people believe the tribe of Dan is, is part of that mix. Um, so, the lost tribes have believed a number of them have moved there and to England and to Scotland as well. And so uh, if you look at Ephraim and uh, Manasseh is, is two key ones that would be for that uh, into Ireland and into England. And with Ephraim being England uh, and a community of nations in the end time and with Manasseh being the United States. But that's a whole different um rabbit trail we're going down here yeah, so i've just got a scoop out of you gary that's going to be about the next book <laughs> <laughs> and and so we have again this this gathering of all these bloodlines mm, into these mm. kingships and dynasties mm. that are mm. all related yeah well well uh, a subject that's uh, uh close to my heart at the moment as you know gary because in my other um podcast that i'm doing is uh, a history of the king james bible um, and you can find that at www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com. Um, I, you know, I've been looking into the, uh, the Stuarts, um, because I started my series well, well, well back before, um, King James was even thought of. And, you know, in your book, you point out that the Stuart dynasty, which James was a part of, the Stuart dynasty is one of the longest lasting, you know, um, uh, royal dynasties in history, uh, immensely important, um, even to this day. Um, can you tell us why it's so important? What, what's, what, what's the big deal about the Stuarts? Well, the Stuarts are, again, um, this, that's one of these crossing points in history of all of these bloodlines coming back together again. And so if the Merovingians are one of the highest level of purity bloodlines then the house of unicorn as they like to call them in in the craft uh is right there with them and is a successor to the merovingian dynasty with the purity of their bloodlines and it is one of those bloodlines that is in my opinion very high ranking to present the antichrist Right, because this is going to be my, one of my questions for you. But the, before we get to that, um, do we have strong evidence uh, that King James the Sixth of Scotland, who most of us know as James I of England, do we have strong evidence that he was a high-ranking Freemason? Uh, yeah, James the Sixth of Scotland or James the First of England. Um, Information that, that I was able to get on him is, is he was initiated in April of 1601. Um, and uh, there's also depictions of him in a lodge in Scotland in Perth. I think it's the Lodge of Schoon, I believe, if my memory serves me right. And it has a depiction of him being initiated into Freemasonry. Right. Um, 
And the patronage of the Stewart family with Freemasonry in partnership with the Sinclairs, I think, is, is well noted. But there is there is there has been a lot of dispute that James VI actually is a Freemason. Um, that's the about it's very stingy on on him. But one presumes that with how the dynasty, all of them, utilized the Freemasonry right even up towards the end with the Jacobite movement, which is was they absolutely manipulated the Freemasonry movement and actually spread Freemasonry to France in that movement, that it would be very surprising that uh, James the uh, Sixth would not have been a Freemason. And I did find a little bit of information that I mentioned that um, he was uh, actually um, part of, uh, actually initiated into Freemasons. But it would make sense because they, they, they patronized the secret societies as part of their kingships. So. Right. What I was going to say about him, though, is that um, in one of the books that he wrote, he wrote a couple of books that were to his son. And in one of them, he warned his son about the um, don't be like your forefathers and actually named them. Um, the earlier, cause obviously he's King James VI, there's a whole, you know, range of Jameses behind him. And he, he wrote to him and he said, don't be like them. So that's why I was wondering, I asked the question. And as you pointed out, the Jacobite movement, which comes in with, it's Charles II, isn't it? Which is, uh, one of his descendants, um, 50 or 60 years, uh, or 30 or 40 years after him. But, but, um, yeah, but I, I see where you're coming from, but I had to ask that question. Next thing is. Well, and, let me, let me just. Uh, sort of elaborate on that just yeah. a little bit because I'm not that hard on James the Sixth. Right, I mean, right. He, I mean, he he is he came into a very very difficult situation. Yeah. And uh, again, you probably covered all of this off in other shows, but from my perspective, is is I mean, he was dealing with, you know, the Presbyterians who uh, uh, were definitely not part of Catholicism and wanted to get rid of the hierarchy. Um, and you had the Puritans in England that didn't think the Reforma- Reformation had gone far enough. You had the Catholics that were trying to bring Rome back, and you had Parliament that was trying to gain more power. And then you had the Anglican, uh, the hierarchy of the Anglican Church, who went after him as well. And he had to try yeah. and please those those five groups and more uh, uh, and to, to bring them into this one unified nation that we now know as well, what became Great Britain and then you came to the United Kingdom. But, but you're right. It was a very, very difficult situation. So I, I just find the whole thing fascinating. But, um, and, and out of that, we get the King James Bible. That's, that's uh, right. That, that yes. everybody uses. And yes. even though it doesn't have the apocrypha in it mm-hmm. in most of the Protestant ones, which was originally in it mm. and it's still in the Catholic Bible that's yeah. used in, 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 in English. Um, it, I mean, that that is an achievement. But I would also say this, that along with that great achievement of creating the, the King James Version, and they, and they did it in, you know, the best vernacular that they could and tried to keep the Puritan influence at bay as much as possible and other influences. I mean, it's hard to get all of that done. But this was also created as a venue to create the Masonic Bible. And so, in fact, the the final product of of 1611 uh, actually had a lot of Masonic um, um, iconography on there and pictures and things like that, and that was obviously removed. But they took that source of the King James Bible and created their own. And in their own Bible that they use in Freemasonry, 
it is in the King James Version, and, but it has additional information. So it has more of, of what they would say is their specialized history, more of redefining different angels as gods and different meanings to different words. And, and that Bible is still used quite actively, and many presidents of the United States will use a version of the Masonic Bible when they're sworn in, although they like to use one in particular that George Washington used twice, or actually the first four presidents used the St. John's Mason Masonic Bible to be sworn in. So this was an offshoot of it. So what was going on with the secret societies part of writing it? Well, probably because they were the elite. And so they did give us something that was very good. And I'm not saying that the King James Bible is not accurate whatsoever. I'm not saying that. But they also used it for their own means and for their own ends. Yeah, well, you know, the, we could we could spend a lot of time on that, but I'm doing a whole 24 part series, so so we'll move on. <laughs> so my so my quick three minutes is is like nothing to that. Well, 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 well one one question I've been um, keen to ask you, um, and but it's like you're reading my sheet here because I do want to talk about the USA in a second, but before we leave the Stuarts, just one question, and 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 you know I don't expect you to have an, have a direct answer to this one, but will the coming Antichrist be of the House of Stuart? It is uh, certainly one of the uh, possibilities and a very, very strong possibility. But there are other very strong bloodlines that are in place as well. And the other title to watch, and again, it what's important about this title is, is several fold. And it's not necessarily inherited by a son. It's one that's placed by who they believe is deserving in the typical tradition, like a Pendragon um, award, wasn't necessary. King was not necessarily a hereditary king. It was the one that was most capable or, or deemed most worthy of having it. And this is the King of Jerusalem title. And this King of Jerusalem title goes back to that Benjamite bloodline I was talking about um, with uh, the Merovingians, which has been was passed on to the Stuarts. So again, it's a, it's a likelihood here. And if you go back to Joshua, the Benjamites Benjamites were awarded Jerusalem as part of their inheritance. And so, by extension, they believe they have the rights to Jerusalem. And so, the King of Jerusalem title today is held by the the King of Spain. I would be, you know, not a hundred percent sure. I would be following that title around. And and because I believe the Antichrist will declare himself as the king of Jerusalem at the abomination in the temple at the three and a half point of the mm-hmm. tribulation. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I think I'm I'm on board with that, too. Listen, um, you, you picked another question that I was going to ask you. Just just in general, um, um, what involvement did the Freemasons have in the creation of the United States? Wow. Pretty much everything, I think. Uh, <laughs> Um, so this uh, dream of, of the United States is, is this idea of creating uh, many states together under one strong uh, central government as a role model for world government. And this idea goes back to the Templars, and it goes back to actually the Atlantean idea 
uh, of a new Atlantis, a new age of Atlantis with a universal religion, a new golden age under uh, a Messiah-type figure. And this is also part of the writings of the new Atlantis that Francis Bacon uh, wrote about uh, that they're trying to bring about. And the Atlantis allegory is really, really important in these secret societies because they believe in the world government that Atlantis uh, tried to put together. They had a ten-nation empire. They were checked in mythology by the Athenians, but they were trying to create a world government. And so the New Atlantis goes right back to the days of Noah, in this case, by using sort of two different uh, trains of thought for prehistory here. Uh, and Atlantis would have been in the days of Noah and destroyed as part of the flood. So they're trying to recreate that. And so um, when we're talking about all of this stuff uh, in terms of these secret societies, what they're trying to do, understand the United States is one of those things that needed to be created to help bring about world government. And so world government will look similar to uh, the United States, but understand the end-time empire is going to be 10 groups of nations or 10 economic zones with 10 rulers that report uh, as one ruling council, kind of like the ring lords of old, which bring, brings in the Tolkien sort of allegories and the Nephilim rings of kingship and King Arthur's uh, round table of kings, uh, that the Antichrist will take over uh, and, and uh, illegally take power from uh, at the three and a half point of the last seven years. So understand that this was planned to create the United States. And there's a lot of information out there that suggests that they knew about the continents even before they were discovered. And if you look at Christopher Columbus's uh, first voyage, he has a Templar flag on his ship, and that uh, Templar money passed the uh, the uh, breakup of the Templars and the organizations that were formed thereafter as an extension of the Templars, you know, helped fund and direct Christopher Columbus to the new continent. So most of the founders of the United States, the most important ones, were all Freemasons. And most of the ones who wrote the Constitution were Freemasons. It's an incredible amount of Freemasons that were involved in the creation of the United States. And again, they were doing that at a time after the Stuarts were no longer in power in England. So their sort of ideal kingship had been removed and George Hanover of, of, of Germany was brought over as a kingship. So now they're going to separate that and, and make sure that United States was going to be the new Scotland type of thing. And um, they did that so that they could create the greatest power on earth. And that's where that whole idea of manifest destiny comes from. Right, right, right. Um, can you tell us who some of the um, founding fathers, which ones might have been Freemasons? Well, how about George Washington? Um, he And uh, one of the things that Freemasonry did um, in the early lodges is they got control of the army. And, and so most of the generals in that were all Freemasons of that time. But again, from a uh, critical perspective, most of the elite were the generals, and these were the people in the secret societies too. But one of Freemasonry's arms that they needed to develop after the fall of uh, the Templars, of what the Templars were doing, is they had to get control of the military. And that was one of the objectives of 
objectives of Freemasonry, also holding uh, sway over politics and being that preparatory organization for the higher level of secret organizations. So other people would have been Benjamin Franklin, uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, you go down all the 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 fathers of the United States, mm -hmm. the famous ones, mm -hmm. they're all Freemasons. Right, okay. Um, uh, just do a couple of more specific sort of questions. Um, uh, I, look, I've got my own ideas about this question here, but who do you think the Illuminati are and what are their goals? Now, I know we've talked a lot about that anyway, what their goals are, because <clears throat> we know it's, <laughs> it's a one-world government, but who are the Illuminati? Do okay, they well, do they still exist today? Sure, and let me let me back up. So because mm. we've been crisscrossing over this, we have, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Okay, so understand that the Knights Templar were this super powerful organization, and all of these organizations had to be what they were doing had to be replaced, but they needed to split it up so that if something like what happened to the Templars were going to happen again, they wouldn't have everything centered in one organization. So. They created Freemasonry, as I told, as I mentioned, for military politics and a preparatory platform. They created the Rosicrucians after the fall of the Templars for the uh, religious aspect, and we talked about Theosophy and New Age and Gnosticism uh, to continue to develop uh, alchemy and the sciences uh, and the absolute science. Uh, the Illuminati uh, was basically formed to uh, establish world government. Uh, as one of their key goals, but also to destroy Christianity, to destroy all opposing religions and governments after Christianity, and to abolish private property. And I'm going to come back to the Illuminati in a second. You know, there was also the Jesuits that were recreated as sort of a military Templar organization within Catholicism that on the surface looks like it's Christian, but underneath it's Gnostic, so they need to recreate that. And they are the moles uh, along with the Cistercians in the Catholic Church, and then that influence has spread to other um, uh, Protestant religions. They also created the banking arm that they had because the Templars were the banking arm of the Western world of that time and created pretty much all the different things that we know about banking today. So they created a family uh, to, uh, of bankers called the Bowers out of Germany that later changed their name when they set up the bank in London to uh, what people would know them today as the Rothschilds. And the Rothschilds are the ones who funded people like the Rockefellers and J.P. Morgans and um, all the pseudo blue buds of North America uh, funded them, promoted them, and they work for them today. And the other one that they had to create was the Royal Society, which was created by Rosicrucians and Freemasons to continue the development of the sacred sciences to move away from sorcery and call it science so Catholicism would not persecute them and give them some latitude and to do all of this to get control of education and away from the Catholic Church who controlled education and to indoctrinate people into um, the philosophies of the seven sciences and to control everything that they were going to be taught all in preparation for world government. So that's a mouthful. So now let's come back to a little bit about who the Illuminati are. And the Illuminati um, was, you know, it 
we we see it merging in with Freemasonry somewhere between 1777 and 1782. There's a few other dates, but within that window. Um, and they were originally begun, uh, unlike what most people think, they were originally begun in the 1500s with um, astronomers and physicists and studying the seven sciences, and they called themselves the Enlightened Ones, and then they were driven into submission by the Roman Church afterwards, and they resurfaced in Germany, which is where most people think that they originated with the Bavarian Masons. No coincidence there, that would be a a Masonic organization, and who they say is the founder of that group, which uh, I'm not so sure on it. He's just probably the leader at that time was Adam Weishaupt, and he believed in a liberal philosophy in the seven sacred sciences. Voltaire uh, and Rousseau were uh, very, very powerful in terms of the intellectual dynamite that he liked to use and what was also used in the French Revolution. And they started calling themselves the Enlightened Ones, which came to be the Illuminati, which is the center of Freemasonry. So once you are illuminated or an adept, you now become uh, an Illuminati, and now you're available to move up. But above Freemasonry uh, um, is other organizations, and so the Illuminati moves higher up and the ones that are more, I guess, have more potential and or pure bloodlines have the ability to, to move higher in this organization. And they can move up to become a Rosicrucian from there. But above the Rosicrucians, and again, there's going to be more, a lot of pure bloods in the Rosicrucians because we're moving up the ladder, but you've got the Rosicrucians that are going to answer to the Committee of 300, that's going to answer to the, the the Druid Council and the Council of 33, and then there's the 13 families that people have probably heard of. So that's who the Illuminati are. They're at the center of Freemasonry, and they're controlling it, and it's the adepts. Um, you, you know, I wanted did, to... Did, it, did, I, did I answer that? that <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, uh you know, I wanted to ask a couple of questions that would highlight the things that you talk about, you know, um, just so the peak a bit of interest so people can go and have a look. Um, one of those things was, um, and this pro- probably help us to bookend our interview here, because um, I've only got a couple more questions for you, Gary, and I'm, I'm grateful that you stayed with me for so long. Um, this one might seem a bit odd, but I, I, I liked I liked how you talked about it, and it will help us bookend here. Can you tell us who the locusts are who come up out of the abyss abyss in Revelation nine, and what is the abyss? Yeah, well, the abyss has uh, several different meanings, but the abyss in in ancient times was either known as Tartarus or a place for fallen angels. They may be even the same place and. People don't know about Greek mythology. That's where the Titans were imprisoned after losing their rebellion and who likely escaped from after the flood. So I think there's a couple different locations. So the abyss specifically, that's in Revelation, is a, a horrible place where it is both hot, fiery hot, there's fire, and there's ice. And it's where Watchers, the Grigori, the Dark Angels, the angels that copulated with the daughters of Cain in Genesis 6. 
for violating the laws of creation and causing the first apocalypse of, of water in the antediluvian period, they were locked into the abyss. And they're going to remain there until the end time. And in the end time, uh, the, one of the angels are going to go and unlock the abyss and they are going to come out of the abyss and that's who these locusts are. Um, and they're, it's obviously in very allegorical languages, but these are the evil fallen angels that went to Mount Hermon and created the original generation of Nephilim. What's really interesting connecting that a little bit further into Revelation is, is they talk about, um, the, uh, uh, the the Antichrist who once was uh, now is not and will come up out of the abyss. And so I believe that Azaziel, who is the uh, probably the Greek version of Apollyon or Abaddon, which is known as this destroyer, and Azaziel was the leader of these watchers, will probably possess in an avatar type of basis um, the Antichrist in the end time. Right, and is he, um, Azizel, is that, that's the Old, Old Testament? Do we find him in the Old Testament? No, we don't. Uh, we don't find that, and we find that in the book of Enoch. Enoch, yeah, okay. But what's interesting, there is a reference to Azazel, A-Z-E-L, mm. as opposed to Azaziel, and that yeah. comes in the Day of Atonement where yes. there's two goats that are sacrificed, mm. one for the sins of Israel mm. and one for a scapegoat in some translations. But in those translations where it says scapegoat, they have an annotation at the bottom of the page. It says Azazel. Yes, yes. And so it's a, and, and this sacrifice is sacrificed to, uh, I believe, the sins of the antediluvian world and to uh, the wilderness where Azazel is, says, says is hung in in some um, apocryphal books and legends, it's an or, or, Orion, and maybe he has a special prison there, but he's probably in this abyss as well with the rest of the Watchers. Yeah, one of the photographs my son brought back from Roslyn Chapel is supposedly, uh, it's an angel hanging upside down with a rope tied around him. And, um, yeah, it's hard to get information correctly on what that is, but apparently it's supposed to be, uh, Lucifer or some fallen angel being hung, but I don't know. Do you know anything about that one? Yeah, and uh, I have that picture on my website, okay. uh, and it and it is Azaziel. Hmm. Okay. And and he is hung upside down in uh, their belief system in Orion hmm. or the abyss, hmm. uh, and uh, the uh, rope is sort of a Z, sort of a, yep. a snake, sort of Z. Yeah. And uh, so he taught um, the illicit knowledge to um, the people of the uh, antediluvian world, to the descendants of Enoch. Um, mm. So some of the more horrific ones and, and help them to, do, to develop uh, this knowledge to a whole new level. And so he is held as the scapegoat mm. for all of the sins of the antediluvian world, which is why the translation scapegoat or zazel is, is on the Day of Atonement ritual. Right. And so this knowledge is has been kept with a whole bunch of different names throughout prehistory. So if, you know, if you've heard of the Pearls of Wisdom. Yes. Yep. The Archives of the Masons, mm-hmm. the Emerald Tablets, the mm-hmm. Golden Fleece, the Golden Apples, the Tablets of Destiny, the Hall of Records, the Tablets of Ham, 
the emerald tablets, the shatia, the rainbow at the end of the treasure, and that's a fairy <laughs> allegory, mm. uh, which is all part of the book as well, because um, this is the antediluvian knowledge. Yes, yeah. Kept in, in, in allegories and in classical literature throughout history, and that is no coincidence because... One of the things we've not had any time to talk about is all of the allegories, whether it's mm. dragons or mm. it's fairies mm. or it's upiers or it's, it's gnomes or goblins and all of these things are in our day-to-day life, superheroes, and they're there for a reason, um, but maybe on another show. Yeah, look, I, I had considered that, but I knew how big it was going to be. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've not been able to do a show yet where we can cover off. The book the, the, there show, is so. so much in this book, and um, I think people are going to enjoy it. As I said before, you know, you can um, pick segments out of it, but if you, you can also read it from uh, where to go. Uh, a couple more questions before I let you go, Gary. Um, um, can you sure share your view on the rapture um, and what are the events that precede the rapture? And um, can you tell me exactly when it's going to happen, please? Well, I I'm mean, kidding. nobody has. I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I wish I could, but I understand that nobody knows except for God. So, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, I, I, do think it you know we need to uh, take everything in prophecy first with what Jesus said so i what no matter what whether or not you're pre trib or mid trib or post trib is i would encourage everybody go to uh, the four gospels and you know whether it's matthew or uh, mark or whatever and listen to what Jesus says first and then decide on the rapture and fit all the prophecies of the rapture around how Jesus gives his chronology of end time events Right, right, okay. So that, that that's your advice. In, in other words... That's my advice. Yeah, 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 okay. Um, yeah, listen, yeah, it's just because the rapture, I mean, too many people use it as division in Christianity. It's true. I don't think that it should divide us. It's no. going to happen. It's mm-hmm. just, when does it happen? Yeah. So. Listen, you know, um, the end times are in, inevitable. We're, we're in them. We're living in them. What, what's your message for people who read your book? What do you want them to get out of it? Well, I want them to uh, learn that not only does the Bible talk about the end times, but pretty much all the ancient colors, uh, cultures, all of the other religions talk about it as well. They're just talking about it from their perspective and how they see it's going to happen. And that this is a message for Christians that we understand it through the right filter, but understand that it's not going to be a coincidence that the end time is going to come about. It's being engineered. That's what they want. They want to stay with destiny. And then the second thing that I would really like people to understand is, is once they read the book, they're going to be able to decode what they're seeing in all the different languages, all the different organizations, whether or not it's entertainment or wherever. They're going to understand the language of what is coming at us. Yes. And that to me is is one of the most important aspects is just to understand what the what the language is in and their history and how and what they're planning it's in front of us all over the place. But most people just don't notice it. And and your book will give some keys to 
uh, open people's eyes to see what's what's in front of them, um, especially in the you know, mainstream media, in movies, in books, and entertainment, and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and then the third thing would be maybe to encourage people to dig a little deeper on this whole subject because there's a lot more going on than um, what they think is going on. All right. Okay. Well, um, Gary, where can people find your book? How do, how do they get their hands on it? And, um, can you also, uh, share your website, please? Yeah. So my book is available, uh, on Amazon around the world. So it is available in, um, uh, Australia. It's also available in New Zealand, um, and in England. And so whether it's .ca.uk, um, .au, it's available and it's available in Kindle form and in print form. It's also available in barnesandnoble.com at the stores. And um, if, you probably have to order it in at the store, but it's also available on the online site. It's available on most online bookstores around the world. It's also available um, through uh, my website, which is www.genesis6conspiracy.com, and that's Genesis 6 with the number, so www.genesis6conspiracy.com. And on there, there's a link to Barnes & Noble and there's a link to Amazon, but there's also a link on a page to buy from the author if you want a print copy and you want it personalized in any way. Oh, nice. And so, and I will be getting an overseas page because I'm shipping books overseas now. Um, I haven't got that up yet. And I'm going to extend an offer for anybody who would want one of those books. And if they want to go to the U.S. page, they can buy it at the U.S. price and the U.S. shipping cost, and I'll pick up the difference. Oh, that's really nice. Okay, what I'll do, Gary, is I'll, um, I'll put a link to your website in the show notes for this show. Terrific. All right. Well, Gary Wayne, author of Genesis 6 Conspiracy. I'm really grateful for your time. I'm really glad we finally got to it because we've we've uh, been waiting for a while. Uh, so thank you for your time, Gary Wayne. Well, thank you very much, Garth. It's been a real pleasure. I hope to come back again. And if I didn't mention it hmm. when I was saying how the book was available, it's also available in Kindle form. Ah, okay, yes, that's important to a lot of people these days. Although I like to have, you know, the physical book in my hands. I love the smell of a book and the flick of the page. But I know a lot of people are into their Kindles. <laughs> Gary, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. God bless. God bless. Thank you. Thank you.